0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid word prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Well, if you have a copy of God's word, I encourage you to join me in First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. First Peter chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 18. 18 as we spend our time together this morning looking at the topic of the suffering of Christ, the suffering of Christ. And I, uh, our passage today uh, is one that I pray will be of great encouragement uh, and hopefully also tremendous value or tremendous benefit to us as we examine examine the sufferings of Christ. Um, sufferings that, as we're going to see in the I think the passage will clearly allude to is primarily seen in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, his death being that on the hands of sinful men on the cross. And so, uh, sufferings that he bore due to the sins of man, sufferings that were at the hands of those sinful men, suffering that was carried out by the schemes of evil spirits and of Satan himself. Suffering that, as we'll see today, that he bore unjustly, meaning that he had no sins of his own and it was not as a result of some form of sin on his part. And so I think Peter's intent is to encourage the saints who are actually in the midst of suffering themselves, uh, in the midst of suffering unjustly, as we studied last week, for the for righteousness sake and for doing good, if it should be God's will, that in the midst of that, they might find Encouragement, And so that's our goal this morning as we study together and as we examine the scriptures together is that we would see the sufferings of Christ. And so I, I pray this and aid to you if you have the notes that's found in the weekly bulletin, I encourage you to take those out. And as you do, you're going to see uh, we've got quite a list ahead of us, uh, 10 points for us to be able to navigate through. And even as uh, I was preparing, uh, it was a lot to be able to, to cover, and uh, I'm not sure I'm going to finish uh, uh, to, and be able to... Uh, Finish all, we're going to do our best. Uh, the good likelihood we'll get halfway through to the first five points, and then we may have to stop. But if not, we'll uh, prepare prepared to finish it. But if not, we will see where we end up by the, the end of time. But t- time may run out before uh, there's enough sermon uh, to have run out as well. So uh, their goal is, the intent is, that you would be encouraged today. And that's, that's, the, that's the intent behind Peter's letter. How can we be encouraged when we're being slandered? How should we be encouraged when we're being reviled? When they're hurling insults to us. When we do what simply the Bible has commanded us to do. And in a loving obedience and willful obedience to our Savior we're persecuted. How should we respond? When your intent is not ill-willed. But your intent is one that loves the Lord and wants to honor God. And yet evil comes as a result of your obedience. How do we respond? Do we grow discouraged? Defeated even in our in our approach and our look at things? And what can we learn? And I think there's much to be learned from our passage today. Much that we can be able to take insight from and give us encouragement to. But in this passage, these uh, five verses, 18 to 22, that's also much debated. If you've read ahead or have studied any, any length of 1 Peter, these are going to be verses that... Um, As we navigate through them, there's uh, a lot of variety of interpretations. And this passage has led, led to much confusion as commentators and Bible scholars have debated its meaning for centuries. Some have taken this passage to lead to an actual denial of Christ's physical death and resurrection. Believe it or not. Some have used this passage to teach a false gospel by the means of salvation through physical water baptism, also known as baptismal regeneration. Some have interpreted this passage to teach that salvation can be granted to individuals post-mortem, after death. I don't believe that any of these interpretations that I've just communicated are an accurate interpretation of this text, nor an honest interpretation of the Bible's teaching as a whole. And so as a result of that, I hope we're going to gain clarity this morning and next week, if it requires, as we study First Peter chapter 3, 18-22 and how it's supposed to be rendered in its immediate context the larger tech context and then the bible as a whole. And so let's read 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22. The bible says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey to him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you give us clarity of mind this morning, an accurate interpretation of your word, that Lord, by it, we may be encouraged, encouraged to trust you all the more, to worship you in your majesty, to lead us to gratitude and thankfulness for your work on our behalf. For the ability to come before your presence because you've brought us to your heavenly father, Lord, that we are grateful for this privilege. And so, God, we ask that you would grant us correct interpretation, you would grant us understanding and clarity. And I, along with Bart, Lord, am asking, it has been my prayer this week that. For those in this room who have never been saved, today may be the day of salvation. In order that they would not harden their hearts, as Bart's already prayed. Lord, it's been my prayer, you know. And a divine work would take place today as we see the sufferings of Christ. We see our own sufferings. And Lord, for, for most of us, it's especially prior to salvation, Lord, it was, was just. It was due to our sin. And the Lord, it would lead us to see the exceedingly sinfulness of our sin. How grave and great it is and the Lord that we would then see how great a savior. That could take away these sins. We acknowledge that, Lord. Our spots cannot be changed. The scarlet cannot be made clean in and of our own selves in and of our own power Merit, but Lord, it can be changed as a result of the Lord Jesus. And so it's we it's in Him that we trust. And I pray that would be the case for some this morning. And for those who have already been saved, that Lord, it may be an opportunity for us to see how we are to view our suffering and be encouraged in the midst of our suffering. And Lord, I know there's a myriad of other needs that's in this room. And Lord, I trust that you are able to meet needs. Lord, you're able to hear their cries in the distress and answer and deliver them that you may be glorified, as your word says. And so, Lord, that's what we ask this morning. Pray you'd hide me behind the cross. May there be no parading or boasting in my flesh, no error being preached, but Lord, it'd be clarity of mind, a clarity of thought, and an ear. And a heart to receive and understand, apply and obey these texts. Not only for me, but for all of us as we worship under your word this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we want to examine the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ. And it's in this that we are going to receive instruction and receive encouragement as we see the sufferings of Christ and how it applies to our lives and how it's been applied to our lives and how it's going to be an encouragement to us as a result, of, as we see what the entire letter is designed to do. The entire letter was written to the exiles who they themselves are suffering. And so we should look to the sufferance of Christ because it will teach us important truths about God, about his salvation, about his hope and his encouragement when we self-suffer. This entire epistle, as I mentioned before, is about suffering and how to view suffering biblically. And so Christ's suffering is going to be seen throughout this epistle as We've been studying. Let's go to back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. The Bible speaks of Christ suffering. It says, Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so you see in verse chapter 1, verse 11, Christ's suffering there that had been predicted. In verse 19, you see the sufferings of Christ again. But with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb... Without blemish or spot. And so you see the sufferings of Christ. That ultimately it was going to be his precious blood. That was going to be shed on our behalf. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. You see it again. For this you have been called. Speaking of the suffering of the uh, believers themselves. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. And so 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. Speaks of Christ's suffering. Clearly in the passage that we're looking at today. You see. Verses 18 through 22, we're going to be speaking of Christ's sufferings. But then you see it in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Again, in verse 13 of chapter 4. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And so you see Christ's suffering there again. And then chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort you, so I exhort the elders among you as, fel, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he gives instruction to them. But he's not only, uh, he was a witness, speaking Peter, speaking of himself, was a witness of Christ's suffering. And so Peter's writing to these elect exiles, and he wants them, these Christians, not to become discouraged in their suffering, but yet desires to encourage them that suffering. Isn't always as it appears. I know many times in my life when I'm experiencing suffering. It appears hopeless. It can appear helpless. And this is not at all what is actually the case. It's just my perspective. Suffering then from a worldly perspective seems to be a defeat. I'm confident that was the way it seemed when Jesus died on the cross. That this was utter defeat. It was the destruction of God's will, perhaps, might be our thought. Not only is it the destruction of God's will, but potentially even of God's plan. I can imagine those 11 disciples that after Christ died, died on the cross, the hopelessness that potentially could have said. And despite the fact that in the Gospels, he told them three times, he must go to Jerusalem, he must die on the cross, and he must rise again. But yet it caught them all unaware. And the question is, man, is this total defeat? Is this? The will and purposes of God over can be viewed from a worldly perspective as a distraction from God's purpose. Clearly, this has to be a detour and a distraction from what God wants. This clearly couldn't be the means by which God has designed his will and plan and purpose. And ultimately, all those things, the attitude that it's a defeat, the destruction of God's will and purpose, it's a distraction from that purpose, can lead us to discouragement. And if that's the case, and if that's true, then discouragement will utterly lead us to disobedience. We will disobey God. Why? Because we will feel like, why trust him? He's been defeated. We've been distracted. We've been detoured, and the will of God has been destroyed. And so as a result of that, we're discouraged. And then that discouragement leads to disobedience however that is not the case and this entire epistle and this particular passage speaks just the opposite christ's suffering was not a defeat but a means of victory that's the hint, hence why he's writing this particular passage and comes right out of our, our suffering to give us an understanding of exactly what he's going to accomplish. But as I told you, it can get confusing in the context of this passage. There's a lot of things as we unpack this that can, has brought about debate and confusion as we study verses 18 through 22. And so just to help you kind of. Strip away some of that. I just want to give you kind of the bookends, allow you to be able to see how this section of Scripture starts and how this section of Scripture ends. Look at 1 Peter three eighteen. If we're going to simply talk about suffering and the sufferings of Christ, that it might provide us encouragement that suffering is not defeat, but is a means of God's deliverance. This is how, what God is, wants us to see, and it's what Peter's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to teach us. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. If you just begin with the bookends, the first part says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. That's where we start. Christ also suffered. You suffer, guess what? Christ also suffered. And how, why did he suffer? For sins. That's the first bookend. Now if we go all the way down to verse 22. Actually you see the context in verse 20, last two words of verse 21. Jesus Christ, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he suffered once for sins, he died, and then now through the resurrection, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It was in the very means of, God, of Christ's sufferings that deliverance from sin and ransom and redemption and salvation was secured. This is no means of defeat. Suffering was not a defeat. This suffering was not destruction of God's will and plan was actually God's will and plan and purpose being accomplished. It didn't distract him from his plan. It did not destroy from God's purposes. It didn't it was not a means of discouragement, but it was absolutely a means of deliverance. That's what Peter wants to get accomplished today in our sermon and what Peter wanted to have accomplished. when he wrote those that were in the exiles that were those elect exiles. And so the theme for today is that Christ's sufferings was the means to exaltation, that he was going to be exalted. And this truth is for God's glory, that ultimately God will receive glory as a result of this sermon, and for our good, our building up, our edification, our encouragement, and yes, our instruction. And so there it is. There's verse 18 to 22, the bookends you're going to to see. We're going to study Christ's sufferings so that we see that in and through that Christ's sufferings was to deliver us and Christ's sufferings were to encourage us when we suffer. All right, so let's now dive into at least five of these ten points that we have this morning here in your notes. The suffering of Christ, first of all, is for our example. The suffering of Christ is for our example. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ also suffered once for sin- sins. If it's going to be our example, the key word there is the word also. The word also speaks to an addition to something, right? I want to do this also. I would like to do this. It's speaking in addition to something. So Christ's suffering is being linked back to. It's included in verses 13 through 17 where the scriptures teach us about suffering unjustly or suffering for righteousness sake. That's exactly what Pastor Tim did a marvelous job preaching through last week. It says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And then again in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good that if it should be God's will than for doing evil. And so you're doing good, you're, you're in doing good, you're, you're expecting a good response. But in that, the world hates God, hates his system. And so as a result, if you suffer, you're going to suffer for righteousness sake. And it's if you're going to be able to do that, then you're suffering un. Justly, a couple of weeks ago, when I was preaching, I, I, I got my notes wrong, and I communicated that the believers should expect to suffer justly. Well, that's true if we sin, but the, the intent—what I meant to communicate—was that believers should expect and are called to suffer justly, right, as a result of not sinning, but out of doing good. It's unjust then for us to suffer, and, and the world would persecute us because why? We're only doing what God had commanded us to do. And it's in this context that the Bible says that was also what happened to Christ. And so we should not be shocked that we suffer because our Savior suffered as well. The Bible would communicate to us in Matthew chapter 10 that we, if our master suffered and we're to follow our master, then we too will experience sufferings. We're, if we're his followers, we should expect that if he suffered, we will suffer. And 1 Peter informs us that we will suffer and that Christ is our example in this suffering. If you go back to chapter 2, verse... Verses 19 to 23. Remember the instructions that were given to us in in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, was to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Spoke of government in verses 13 through 17. And then beginning in verse 18, which is where we'll study this context of suffering unjustly. Where it's talking about serving serving masters. Submitting ourselves to masters. And not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And listen to verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So here you see in verse 19, it's a gracious thing when we're thinking of God, when we're obeying God and we endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And once again, this shouldn't be shocking to us. Why? Well, listen to what verse 21 says. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an what? Example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so Peter instructs us that we will suffer, and that Christ was our example in that suffering. He began to talk about Christ was our example, and that when him there was no sin, there was no deceit, found his mouth, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the instructions that are given to us. Look at chapter three, verse nine. Chapter three, verse nine. You see the same words that Jesus lived out being commanded for us. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. Where Jesus did not revile in return, when he was reviled, the Bible's communicating, commanding us that we should not revile in return, but that we should bless those who curse us, bless those who persecute us. Why? So that we might receive a blessing. And so the Bible says the suffering of Christ is for our example. For Christ also suffered. We saw also, but look at the word suffered. Now some translations, even translations you may have in your Bible right now, may not read suffered, it may actually be translated died. For Christ also died once for sins. Now my translation, ESV here, translates it suffered. But some translations will translate it or read that he died. Now for this particular passage, the words are interchangeable because actually in this context, you can have died or suffered without negatively impacting the accurate interpretation. Why? Because Jesus did suffer even unto death by death of crucifixion, death on a cross. And so Christians should expect to suffer and even Christians should expect to die have having begin, given an example of Christ's own suffering and Christ's own death. It's exactly the author's final date, uh, fate and destiny, if you will. God's plan mapped out for him that Peter would be led to crucifixion and extra biblical historical facts begin to tell us that, yes, he did die. He died crucifixion and crucifixion upside down. So Christians should expect simply to suffer and, yes, may even martyrdom. Now, it may not require martyrdom as it did for Peter, but it does require obedience in the midst of suffering. So it may not lead us to death, as the scripture says. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So we need to look to Christ so that we may not grow discouraged. We may not grow faint-hearted. We may not give up. So look to Christ. He went to the cross on our behalf. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding of your own blood. And so the scripture would encourage us to be able to say, listen, you may go to death. You may go to the, the route of martyrdom. But if you don't go to the route of martyrdom, regardless, you are required to be obedient in the midst of suffering. We have been given an example. And so the sufferings of Christ is for, number one, our example. For Christ also suffered. But the sufferance of Christ is not only for our example, but the sufferance of Christ, um, the sufferance of Christ by his death was sacrificial, was sacrificial. The suffering of Christ was sacrificial. It says here in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for what for sins. He was a sacrifice for sins. So therefore, Christ suffered for a purpose. It was not in vain It was not haphazard. It was not an afterthought. Christ died. Christ suffered for a purpose. It was not wasted. And it was not apart from God's gracious plan. Far from it. God's plan included this suffering. And we see that Christ suffered for sins. Which begs a very important question. Whose sins did he die for? If Christ also suffered once for sins, it's important we know whose sins Christ died. Well, first Peter chapter two that we've already discussed this morning has answered that question for us. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty two says, He, speaking of Jesus, Jesus, committed no sin. So he died for sins of others and not his own sins. If he had needed to die for his own sins, he could not have made payment for our sins, and so Jesus died as a sacrifice for others. The word "sins" it says he died for sins. The word "sins" that is used there in this passage actually refers, can refer to the sacrificial system from the Old Testament. Romans chapter eight, verse three uses this same word. For God has done what the law, for God has done what the law, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, as you see here in, the, in, in that context, as a sin offering, it can be translated, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so Jesus died as a, as it said there, according to sin or a sin offering. And so this is exactly what's being communicated here. If you want to hold your place in Hebrews, we're going to be there. Uh, flipping back and forth a lot uh, this morning. So if you're in First Peter, if you want to hang a left. You'll find James, and from the book of James, you'll you keep hanging a left, and you'll find your way to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be there uh, a lot as we navigate between these two books, as we kind of see what's being interpreted, what means. But once again, we're discerning what the word sins there. What kind of sins is he dying for? And it's, we're referring to the sacrificial system that was put in place. Hebrews chapter ten. Verse 6 speaks of this. And we'll actually pick up in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. And the word that we're going to be looking there is in verse 6. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the book of the scroll. And then it goes and continues on to talk about is this sin offering Verse that we saw in verse 6 is again in verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasures in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offering according to the law. That sin offering there is the same word that's used and translated in our passage, sins. He died for sins or a sin offering. And so Hebrews 9.22 also speaks to this. Sin offering that was necessary. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus died sacrificially. He died for sins and sinners. And this should be a good reminder to us this morning. That our sins would not be paid if Jesus had not died for those sins. That we have... Committed and that we yet will commit. We should always be mindful of this. Sacrifice that was made for us. And we should always be grateful. For his work of grace on our, on our behalf. Second we should also realize. That like our savior. We too have the ability to suffer. For the sins of others. When we suffer unjustly. Just as we have seen in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12. 1 Peter 2 12. Says this: Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. Why? The purpose will call so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is different. It's not exactly the same way. Jesus was a sacrifice for sins, and that He made atonement for them. He was our substitute. He made payment for them, and so clearly we cannot. Suffer in that same manner, we do not make atonement for any sins because we ourselves are sinners. So, in what way is it similar? It's similar in that where we would suffer unjustly, just as Jesus died, right? When we suffer unjustly for righteousness' sake, not because we've sinned and therefore were as punishment for those sins, but when we're walking by doing good deeds and we suffer as evildoers, when we are reviled, when we're slandered, when they speak against us as evildoers. Then in that manner, yes, they may be able to see Christ's sacrifice on our behalf that we do not revile. And that where he suffered unjustly, we also may suffer unjustly that they may see our good deeds. As 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, and that God may be glorified on the day of visitation. What's that day? The day when those who actually would revile us may be put to shame. And on that day, they might actually be humbled They may see that ultimately God is the one who is good. And it is God who is at work in us to will and to work his good pleasure. And as a result of that, they may be born again. That day of visitation speaks of their salvation. And as a result of that, in some way, that's mysterious to us, but God has ordained. He allows us. He's ordained for us. His plan and purpose is for us to suffer in order that, that through the means of suffering, they may see good deeds that are done in him, through him, and for him And that others might be saved as a result of his work on the cross. And his work in and through us. That they may see God. This is the sacrificial system. That that was put in place. And that ultimately others may may see Christ. And when we suffer not because of our sins. But because of sins of others. The Bible says this is precious in the sight of God. We saw that in. Chapter 2, verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Again, in verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, this is you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God says this is gracious and this is good in his sight when we suffer. This is not a part. This is not um, a means of distraction or a, de- uh, a deportation from His will and plan is actually a part of His will and plan for us. Number three, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The Bible says that Christ suffered as our example, as we saw in point number one. And that His suffering and subsequent subsequent death was sacrificial, as we saw in point number two. But it also says that it is now, number three, final. Christ also suffered once for sins sins he only died once for sins look at hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did, did this once for all when he offered up himself. See, you see that he was sinless. He bore the sins of others, not his own. Unlike those priests that needed to offer sacrifices daily. First for their own sins. Christ needed not to sacrifice daily first for his own sins. He committed no sin, First Peter 2.22 says. But no, it, was, it was not his own sins. And then for the sins of the people like the priests would do. But he suffered only once. When he offered up himself one time. And so this was a, a different type of sacrifice. One that was not the blood of bulls and goats. But was the sinless offering of a spotless lamb. The lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. You see this again in Hebrews chapter 9. I told you we'd be in Hebrews a lot. We will continue to be in Hebrews a lot. Hebrews 9 verse 24 through 26 for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own for then he would would have to offer he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see that this was a unique sacrifice in that it was final. It was for our example. It was sacrificial. It was on our behalf. And it was final. And then he. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what Hebrews 10 beginning in verse 11 through 14 says. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Which can never fully take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, only once, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the encouragement for us that Christ's death was for our example. That we too would know how to suffer in this world. That we should expect suffering. And when suffering comes, it's not something that should be shocking to us. Our master Our Lord, our Savior suffered. And as a result, we too should suffer a variety of sufferings, a variety of trials. And that he gave us a good example. But then not only was he our example, he was sacrificial. He died for sins. He was a sacrifice for sins. And that sacrifice was final. He also suffered once and only once for sins. The sacrificial system is now over because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Through his suffering, which is the death on a cross. There is no longer need, payment needed for sins. And there is only a repenting of sins and placing of faith, a placing of our faith in Christ's finished work for sins that is required. And so we see Christ's suffering is important already. But now look at point number four the sufferings of Christ is a gracious substitution. The sufferings of Christ is a gracious substitution. Verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Look at that substitution. The righteous for the unrighteous. The suffering of Christ is a gracious substitution because it is the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the sinless for the sinful. We saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, the sinless, the righteous, the just, speaking of Christ. He committed no sin. But if we skip down just a couple of verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we see now the opposite of that: the unrighteous, the unjust, the sinful. He himself bore whose sins? Our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live. To righteousness, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So this is exactly what the scriptures have been teaching again and again and again. Listen to Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one. For our sake, the sake of the redeemed, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to it again. For our sake he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the scripture teaches. A gracious substitute. That sacrifice was so that we didn't have to pay for our own sins. That Christ was going to be a substitute for us. That's what it says in Hebrews 9.28. Which you just mentioned and alluded to before. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Those will be our sins we will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ has died as a substitute for us so that we don't have to experience eternal damnation. He bore the death that we deserve so that we may live in the righteousness that he possesses. That's what verse 24 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter was alluding to. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Why would He do that? Why would He bore or bear your sins and my sins? Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our sin was put on Him who knew no sin. So that His righteousness could be put on us who was not righteous. So that when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Christ. And when He looked at Christ on the cross, His wrath. Was poured out on Christ. This massive substitute is doing what we couldn't do. In our sin. We could not obey God fully. God's standard of holiness requires that man would live in perfect obedience to him. The law of God simply shows the just requirement for a relationship with God. And that is perfect perfection. Obedience. Without fault. Without falter obedience that's ultimate that is what we would what we describe good would be de- described in the bible good meaning perfect morally excellent this is god's standard and it did not take but just a moment as we peruse through the 10 commandments to begin to realize that we are utterly hopeless and we are utterly helpless if we that's expected to be demanded of us on our own by our own merit and there, therein lies why there needed to be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice would be a substitute once and for all. He bore the death that we deserve so that we may live in righteousness that he and he alone possesses. That he and he alone possesses. Number five. The Bible says that the sufferings of Christ is for our Reconciliation is for our reconciliation. So far, we've seen that the suffering was seen in His substitution, right? We just saw that moments ago. It means to be in our place, made atonement or at one with God as a result in the midst and even uh, in spite of our sins. And so, it's suffering was seen in His substitution, but also for our reconciliation. He was reconciling. Sinful men to a sinless God. The scripture informs us that the purpose was that he might bring us to God. First Peter chapter three reads there that he might, verse 18, that he might bring us to God. So Christ's suffering was seen so that ultimately for our sins, once and all for, for all for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, here's the question. Who is being brought to God? The passage reads that those who are being brought to God are those whom Peter is writing. That's why he used uh, the, the pronoun there, us. That sa- it says here that he might bring us to God. Now, who is the us? It's to whom he is writing. And we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, or 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. He was writing to the elect exiles, as we saw in 1 Peter 1 and 2. That's those who are recipient of this letter. And so Jesus died to bring all the elect, not just those who are receiving these letters, but even us who have been born again, all the elect, the chosen ones, to God according to his definite plan. This is his encouragement here. Christ died for the sins of many, and those many are the ones whom he has chosen. Now, the reality is we don't know who those elect are. You don't look on our foreheads and all of a sudden you see an E inscribed on their forehead. The kids' children aren't born out of the womb. And if you see them in the first few minutes before the world takes hold of them, you can see this divine E inscribed upon them as they come out of the womb. There's nothing like that. We don't know who these elect are. We know who the elect are as a result of seeing Christ work in their lives. The perseverance of these saints as they continue to remain in the faith. But we don't know who these elect are. But the Bible says that this is exactly whom Christ died is to bring these elect into His kingdom. Now As a preacher, as a pastor, I'm going to preach to all repentance and faith. I'm going to present the gospel and preach that you must repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, not a means to merit salvation, but as a result of salvation has been accomplished on your behalf in Christ through the cross. And his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's the Spirit's work that awakens you from your sinful rebellion that then you would then repent and believe. And so it's Christ's finished work on the cross on our behalf that accomplishes this work for us. This is what it, the Bible would say that the elect will respond to is this amazing, marvelous gospel. And this is exactly what we see over and over and over through Scripture. Listen to this. If you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, we're going to read verses 3-14 through 14 and just see these those elect, those ones whom He is writing in Scripture, those that God's chosen to be brought to Him. Now listen, that should not scare us. It should not intimidate us. It should, not, it, should mo- it should actually motivate us and encourage us and lead us to evangelism. Why? I've mentioned this numerous times, again and again and again. The reality is we don't know who the elect are. We know God... Saves individuals. And we know God knows all things. And it's in God's will and plan. He sees everything from the beginning to the end. That's why the Bible says he is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's eternal. He stands outside of time. But as it relates to how we would define time. And the time that we're limited to in our finiteness. He's looking in on that. He's involved within it as well. But as he's outside of that. Not limited by time. He knows whom Will be his. And so as a result of this. This should provide us encouragement. Why? Because you and I. Despite how horrible the situation. How heinous of a people. How much hatred toward God. These individuals may have. You go and present the power of God. in the salvation. Which is the gospel. Romans 1 says. And that power of God. Is calling someone out. What a blessed hope we have. We go preach the gospel anywhere. And this is exactly what we see in Ephesians 1. This blessed hope that we have. Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here it is. Even as he chose us. There it is. How we would render the word elect. He chose us. In him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. See, there's the plan being accomplished for us. that He might bring us to God. In him we have redemption, payment made through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, all things in heaven and things on earth. We're seeing it come alive, are we not? This passage that we're studying, that Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. All who are His, all that He knows all that are going to repent and believe. And we see that plan unfolding. That mystery of His will as it were. As we as our lives are transformed. As we're in His word. As we study about Him. Verse 11. Ephesians 1. In Him. In Christ. We have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. Who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Even our salvation. According to the counsel of His will. So that we... Who were the first to to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now how does this get accomplished? How does he bring us to God? Yes, it's through the work of Christ. The redemption of our sins. Payment through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. But then in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. The good news, the gospel of your salvation. And believed in him. We're sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Individuals repent and believe when we hear the gospel. Again, alluding to the fact that I communicated before, we don't know who the elect are. We don't know when the elect will be saved. Here's a question. Is the thief on the cross that was saved in the final hours one of God's elect? Talk to me, church. Is the thief on the cross one of the God's elect? How much time did he have to respond to the gospel by repentance and faith? How much time? Hours at best, right? Hours. I've heard many times people say. As you just try to be faithful to the text. I'm not trying to preach some agenda. I'm just trying to preach what the Bible says. Use terms the way the Bible uses them. And not bury my head in the sand. Because certain doctrines are controversy. It's foolish of any of us. To not believe all of God's word. And so none of God's word is going to be in contradiction with each other. They have to tie together. And so we'd be wise. To see how they tie together. Does God choose people before the foundations of the world and predestine them to be adopted as sons in Christ? Yes. Who are they? I have no idea. What should we do? Preach the gospel. And God will redeem those who are chosen. Well, just shouldn't that leave to a discouragement of preaching the gospel? No, I just told you why I actually have hope. It wasn't until I really grasped hold of this gospel, this doctrine of election, that God actually empowered me from from fearless, from being fearful. Why I can now go to Haiti and I can go to India and I can go to any other places where uh, terrorists and and um, uh, aggressive Muslims who would hate this gospel may want to destroy my body. Why can I go in there with boldness? Despite the fact they might destroy my body, God may exactly call someone out just like he did Saul who became Paul and was one of the greatest missionary statements of the known world. When a young, I say young, when just a servant named Stephen stood boldly and preached the gospel. And they said there was a man there holding the cloaks of those who cast stones and, and stoned Stephen to death. This guy then named Saul was going to be confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Or that why I would continue to have that zeal and never give up hope on somebody, even if they're on their deathbed. Why? Because the thief on the cross was also one of God's elect. And he was saved in the final hours. Men and women, we shouldn't pretend to be God because we are not. And we shouldn't pretend to even have the mind of God because we don't. But the Bible does say this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God, but the things that have been revealed to us, the things that are in His word, have been granted to us and our children. I want my children to have hope in this powerful God who can redeem sinners, even sinners who shake their fists at Him and say they don't want Him. That he can save even them. And he can save them even at the last hour. The doctrine of election should not be hated. The doctrine of election should be elated. We should be encouraged by this doctrine. It was that doctrine. That brought you and I to God. As Christ suffered. For us on the cross. And so the us is referring to those elect exiles. Those the recipient of this letter. And yes for all the elect including anyone in this room. Who is repentant of sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus. That we are a part of his divine purpose and plan. Well then begs the question. That he might bring us to God. How does Jesus bring us to God. How does he bring us to God? First, we have seen by the way of forgiving our sins, by making payment for our sins on the cross. It's what we just talked about. Jesus died, suffered, died once for sins, right? So it was a sacrifice. That sacrifice was a substitution, the righteous for the unrighteous. That way he made payment for sins. Now why here's the question why did he make payment for sins? So there was a basis for forgiveness. You know, when you forgive somebody, you take ownership of the debt. You take ownership of the debt. I think I've used this illustration before, and I'm going to give it to you again just to help you. Come home, we have a big screen television. Kids are playing around the big screen television, hiding around, running upstairs where our television is, and one of them goes to move and, out of the way from being tagged by one of his or her siblings, and when he goes to the pool, he pushes or she pushes the television, the television falls over and breaks. Right After I quit screaming, now I'm steezing. teasing, right? After I, I come into this and find the situation, there's clearly fear that uh, that was not a good thing to do, and, an understanding that there's guilt and a, and a right guilt and a right understanding of guilt, meaning that they, you're guilty because you are guilty, right? They've done something wrong. They've rebelled. They disobeyed. And as a result of that. You know, punishment could be awaiting. One of my children then look at me. They repent of the sin of disobedience. Not honoring their father and mother, not obeying their father and mother and in instructions that have been given them. And at the moment, I'm, when asked to forgive, if I'm a Christian, I'm mandated to forgive. Mandated. That's what the Bible teaches. Ephesians 4 through 2, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. Mandated to forgive. Now, when I forgive them. Doesn't mean I forget what happened. But I'm choosing to make a promise. I'm not going to bring it up to them. I'm going to remember it no more. Meaning I'm not going to actively hold it against them. I'm not going to bring it up to others. Do you know what my bonehead kid did the other day? Knocked my television over. Now I can't watch NASCAR. Right? Right? That's. I'm going to bring it up to others. And I'm not going to bring it up to myself. I'm not just going to sit and stew on it. I can't believe it. Just angry. Give them the cold shoulder. I made a promise. Now, was it my sin? My rebellion? My disobedience? Why the television got broken? No understand god's sovereignty you'd be like it's part of god's plan okay i'll give you that right maybe we shouldn't be watching as much television but if the television is going to be replaced and my say it was my my youngest who's seven might take him a little while to earn enough money to replace that if i required that then the reality is i'm going to own some of that debt Does that mean I'm condoning that sin? Does it mean I'm partly responsible? No, it was all on my child who broke the television. But in an individual who has no means to make payment, and the payment needs to be made, then I'm going to take ownership for it. And herein lies the picture of the gospel. We are my child in the example. No means to make payment for sin, acknowledging guilt and complete ownership on our part. In order for forgiveness to be made, someone had to take ownership of the debt. It had to be paid, or therefore there wouldn't be no reconciliation. And then lies substitution, atonement for sin. Therefore, forgiveness could be granted. Here's what happens in our society. Our society wants a forgiveness that has no cross. It's just a picture of salvation, nothing more. An acknowledgement that Jesus was loving and he was kind. And we simply should just be loving and kind as he is. But if that's the extent of your gospel, you are still in your sins because you have no means to make payment. The reason we can be forgiven of our sins is because payment has been made for sins and thus we can be forgiven. The debt has been paid. The scripture says that the Bible will by no means declare the guilty innocent apart from payment being made. And so God's wrath had to be poured out on sin and hence why Jesus went to the cross to make payment for our sins. So first we have seen by way of forgiving our sins, by making payment for sin on the cross. That's how Jesus brought us to God. And second, by granting us access to God through him by bringing by granting access to god through him this is where the word says that he might bring us to god we've already seen who he was talking to he's talking to us those who are the elect but it's interesting about the word to bring he's to bring he might bring us to god in verse 18 that word bring it's a verb form of one who gives access or introduces one to another be the picture of the person that if you remember from the, the book of Esther. Remember in the book of Esther the king would not allow someone to have access to himself without having permission being granted. There would be individuals at the door that would not grant an individual permission without certain credentials or being requested to come before the king. And so this is the picture here that word there's the verb form of that noun form of the individual who would be, be that person and so. It speaks of someone who introduces individuals to each other. That would herald and begin to communicate the entrance of someone who's coming before a king. And this is the role of Jesus Christ in salvation. He makes payment for sin. And then introduces the former sinner to the father. Makes payment for sin. And then introduces us as a son. Isn't that amazing? is that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging this morning? This is the role of Jesus Christ. We see that in a variety of places. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through or by me. No one comes to the Father except being allowed or granted access to the Father through Jesus Christ. You see it again in Acts chapter 12, verse, Acts chapter 4, sorry, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The very one who made payment for sin is the very one who introduces us to God the Father, who declares us to be a part of the family. How does this introduction take place? How does he bring us to God? What happens in this introduction? This introduction takes place by God transforming our lives and granting repentance. By transforming our lives and granting repentance. What do I mean by transforming our lives? That's the new birth. That God makes us alive in him. And then granting repentance. To us to turn from our sin and power and enabling us. Remember what in, in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins In his body on the tree, that so that we might die to sin. That's the granting of repentance, that we would turn from sin. And by changing us from the inside out, we're able to turn from sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so this introduction takes place when an individual repents of his or her her sin and places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so far, as we've seen this morning, That Christ's suffering actually gained victory over sin and sinners. Did it not? Gained victory over sin and sinners. This was good because it made payment for sin. We've talked about it being sacrificial. It was once for all. That it was final. And it was so that we would not have to experience eternal separation from God. Which was our substitution. And this was done so that we could be brought to God. Which is reconciliation. All if... All as a result of us being brought to God. He brings us to God. So two or three questions and we're finished this morning. I, I want everyone in this room to listen to. Everyone in this room to listen to. Have you been saved? Have you been reconciled to God? From the very youngest to the very Oldest. Are you at right with God? Are you at peace with God? You say, well, yeah, potentially, maybe. Let me ask you to do this way. According to a biblical foundation, according to what the Bible says, a person can be at peace with God. Do you have peace with God? If your answer right now is, I don't know. Then you need to find out what the Bible requires. I've explained it again and again this morning, but if you're still unsure, I would implore you to ask someone around you after the service. Talk with me or Pastor Tim or another individual here that you know has been born again. And you feel like that's a good understanding of the gospel. That we might help you simply to understand what is required. I'm you another way. Have you been born again? Or the Bible says born again, born from above. There is a work that's taken place in you that's not your own. Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation? Are you looking at that triumph of Christ on the cross? That suffering of Christ, which is no, tr- is no defeat whatsoever. It's actually deliverance that God has made for us. Are you trusting in that? If no, then let me encourage you, today is a day of salvation, as Bart and I have already prayed. As the scripture has already communicated and taught us. And in that the encouragement the scripture teaches, we would implore you, do not harden your hearts. If you've got questions about the gospel, ask them. But if you have, if you have been born again, you have been reconciled, you are saved, you repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then you may be encouraged today that your suffering is not in vain. It is not in vain. Christ's suffering was not in vain and your suffering is not in vain. They both have a purpose. You might say, well, Pastor, what is that purpose? Number one, it tests the genuineness of your faith. That's what 1 Peter 1.7 taught us. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That suffering that you're going through is going to result in praise and honor and glory when Christ returns. It is not wasted. It tests the genuineness of your faith as well as it is a means that God uses to bring glory to his name. We saw that in 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day that they've been born again. Christ has overcome sin and sinners through his suffering, and Christ now empowers those of us who have been born again to do the same in our suffering. And as we've seen before, let me remind us and then we'll close in prayer. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Been healed. If you've not been saved this morning, I, I cannot implore you enough. Please talk with somebody today. Call the office, even as you're leaving out of here. Leave a voice message on the phone for Shelby when she comes in tomorrow morning to have us contact you to schedule a meeting. If you want to see Pastor Tim and I schedule a meeting with us, send us an email, talk to another member over lunch, ask a member to take you out to lunch. Call a godly friend or mentor who knows and loves God's word. But if there's uncertainty now, don't, listen, do not harden your heart. If you're a young person here, you're a student here, you're a child of someone here. And if you were to die tonight, today, I don't know why it's always at night. If you were to die today, right? It's always tonight. If you were to die today. And you're uncertain whether or not you're going to spend eternity with God forever in a place called heaven. Will you talk to somebody? I would implore you to have that conversation today. Because Christ's suffering is was not in vain it was not defeat it was simply a means of deliverance let's pray together father with the lucky land you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky